May what I say be in God's name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Uh, Good morning. morning. I need to let everyone know that children can be dismissed. So if you have kiddos and uh, they can be dismissed to the back for children's worship. Uh, Man, it's good to be back. It's great seeing you all. Uh, For those of you who do not know who I am, I am obviously not Warren Gray, but uh, my name is Michael Van Heist and I was the interim minister uh, for this church for a few months and uh, uh, I just want to let you guys know that I love you all very much. You have played a critical role in who I am becoming as a minister. And it's just, it's really good to see you guys. I've, mi- I've missed y'all. So, um, I also want to thank Warren, too, even though he's not here. Maybe he'll hear this, you know, through contemplation. Uh, I've gotten to know him uh, throughout the past year or so, and he's, not, he's been a wonderful minister to you, but he's also been a wonderful minister to me. And uh, I very much appreciate him, not only for this opportunity to come back and speak with you guys, but also uh, for buying my lunch every time I come into town. So uh, maybe that can happen more often, but we'll see. Um, So from my understanding, Warren has been going through the gospel of Mark with you for the past few weeks. And as we were deliberating about which passage I could preach on, I was tempted just to preach an old sermon and see if any of you would remember it. (laughs) But I was like, I don't think that's fair. So uh, we finally ended up on uh, Mark 16, verses 1 through 8. So if you have your Bibles, we'll be... uh, there for this morning. But before diving into the passage, you might be wondering why not include the rest of the chapter? Because there's actually 20 verses in the chapter, not just eight. Uh, in short, the, the reason why I'm stopping at verse eight is because the general consensus among biblical scholars is that the real ending of Mark ends at verse eight. I mean, if you are familiar with your, uh, with your Bibles, uh, it has, uh, it, your Bibles say that the earliest manuscripts and some other ancient witnesses do not have verses 9 through 20. That, right? That sounds pretty familiar. Uh, and this is not to say that we couldn't benefit from learning something about God from verses 9 through 20. But this morning, I'll just restrict my comments to the first eight verses. Uh, one, because if you know me, I don't, I don't mind trusting the, rely, the expertise of uh, biblical scholars. But even more, in terms of theology, in terms of our own reflection about God in our current time and space, you can't read this passage without feeling some sense of discomfort. And with that being said, the word of the Lord. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome uh, bought spices so they could go and anoint Jesus' dead body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they came to the tomb. They were saying to each other, who's going to roll roll the stone away from the entrance for us? And when they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, and it was a very large stone. And going into the tomb, they saw a young man in a white robe seated on the right side, and they were startled. But he said to them, don't be alarmed. 
You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has been raised. He isn't here. Look, here's the place where they laid him. Go tell his disciples, especially Peter, that he is going ahead of you into Galilee. You will see him there just as he told you. Overcome with terror and dread, they fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. The word of the Lord. The end. Ta-da! Is this the resurrection passage you want to hear on Easter this year? I mean, it seems we can't read this passage without coming away with some sense of discomfort. I mean, when I think about Easter, Easter Sundays or sermons on the resurrection more generally, I recall those sermons on the age to come or hope or our redemption, assurance, or salvation. But this passage doesn't give rise to any of those themes. I mean, the scene begins with the two Marys and Salome heading towards the tomb to perform a proper anointing on Jesus' dead body. Instead, as they arrive to the tomb early in the morning, all they witness is the aftermath. There is no earthquake, there's no rolling of the stone by an angel, no spreading the word to the rest of the disciples, no redemptive scene for Peter or Thomas. There's no ascension with that great commission that churches of Christ love. Uh, And even worse, there's no appearance of the risen Jesus himself. Somehow, this very large stone covering the entrance has been rolled away, and, the, and what they find in the tomb is even more disturbing because Jesus isn't, isn't even there. Instead, it's this young man dressed in white, presumably an angelic figure, who is uh, sitting there almost as if nothing's out of place. And this angelic figure proceeds to provide the three women with three things. First, an assurance. Uh, saying, don't be alarmed, which, time out for a second. If I was one of those disciples, I'd be like, okay. You know, like, I won't be freaked out that something crazy is happening right now. Uh, secondly, a testimony of what happened. He has been raised. And, th- and finally, specific instructions to go tell the, his disciples, especially Peter, that he's going ahead of you into Galilee. You will see him there just as he told you. But instead of heeding the angel's instructions, we end on the three women overwhelmed in fear and silence. Or as verse 8 says, with terror terror and dread, they fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. So the question is, How do we make sense of their fear and silence? Okay, so when I first tried to make sense of this passage, I uh, I initially thought about that TV show, The Walking Dead. How many of you have heard of this show? Okay, for those of you who are unfamiliar with it, you're not missing much. uh, it's, it's, it, the Walking Dead is one of those zombie apocalypse shows with the same premise all zombie apocalypse uh, type stories have, right? Dead people are walking and eating the live ones. Um, 
And I thought about The Walking Dead because in the first episode, you see this main, the main character waking up from a coma uh, that he acquired before the apocalypse of zombies hit. And so as this viewer, you see his reaction in kind of real time where he is entering this new reality, this new world with zombies walking around everywhere. So he is horrified. And uh, I thought that this fear depicted from that main character was a great way of imagining the terror and dread of the two Marys in Salome at the empty tomb. But then I started thinking about it more. And the comparison just doesn't work. First of all, Jesus is not a zombie. Uh, He's not eating anyone, nor is he a dead man walking. But more specifically to our passage... Uh, The fear embodied in that TV show is the kind of fear of something that is dangerous, like a zombie or uh, other human beings that seem to be dangerous. It's that kind of fear that's at the root of so many of our sins in our world today. Fear of the poor, fear of the immigrant, fear of someone of another race. But that's not the kind of fear that's embodied by the three women at the tomb. On the one hand, some interpreters aren't even surprised by the women's fear and silence in the first place. Instead, they see their fear and silence as a form of reverence. It's that feeling of awe or wonder we get when we behold something so surreal, so sublime, so beyond ourselves that we are rendered to silence because words can't justify the event. For example, uh, it's like the birth of your child uh, or this event of new life entering into the world. Or, that doesn't work, it's that feeling you get when you visit natural wonders like the Grand Canyon or uh, El Capitan at Yosemite, right? No matter what you can do, you can't depict that. It's not a fear of something dangerous, but a fear as a form of reverence. In fact, fear as a form of reverence is particularly common in Mark's story uh, whenever a divine figure appears. Uh, Take Mark's retelling of Jesus' transformation or transfiguration on the mountaintop. Uh, This is a story where he takes Peter, James, and John on a climbing expedition on top of a very high mountain and his clothes transform before them. And his uh, clothes are amazingly bright, brighter than if they had been bleached white. Moses and Elijah appear. And Peter says, uh, Peter reacted to all this by saying to Jesus, Let us make three shrines for you. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He said this because he didn't know how to respond. For the three of them were terrified. This terror embodied by Peter, James, and John is not one of danger, but of reverence, similar to the three women running away from the empty tomb. So I used this hand. So on the other hand, other interpreters take the women's uh, fear and silence as stemming from an unwillingness rather than an inability. In other words, they are not heeding the angel's instruction to tell Peter and the other disciples, not out of reverence, but out of reluctance. 
This reluctance stems from not recognizing the significance of the empty tomb. This would be like when we have this enormous project due at work, say a sermon, or, or this enormous task that was requested by your spouse or your parent at home. Clean your room, mow the yard. And for whatever reason, we choose not to honor that request. Right, And we don't honor that request because we're rendered incapable somehow. We don't honor that request because we're reluctant to. Understanding the woman's, women's fear and silence as a kind of reluctance makes more sense when we consider one of the larger and recurring themes in Mark's whole story. Uh, in, in Mark's whole gospel. I mean, throughout Mark's story, he shows time after time that the insiders, those in Jesus' inner circle, are really the outsiders. They are the ones who do not understand and recognize Jesus as the Son of God. And this leads and results in a misunderstanding on what it means to follow him. Whereas the outsiders of Jesus' circle uh, are really the insiders, insofar as they have this immediate access to seeing Jesus for who he really is, the Son of God. Take every instance Jesus encounters a demon in the first few chapters of Mark. They recognize truth. They, and, and right before they reveal who he is, Jesus shuts them up. This makes the women's appearance at the empty tomb all the more compelling, especially when we think about the gender dynamics in Mark's story. I mean, consider first that in the majority of Mark's story, women are portrayed as a minor character or as a minor role. Uh, For example, most women in Mark's story are nameless. And they are depicted as, for example, this bleeding woman who touches Jesus' cloak. The Syrophoenician woman who begged Jesus to heal her daughter. Or the woman who anointed Jesus' feet as a preparation for his burial. But when we come to Jesus' crucifixion and the empty tomb, Mark names the three women. Mark's naming of the Mary, the mother of James, Mary Magdalene, and Salome highlights how they were not only faithful followers of Jesus, but how they were insiders within Jesus' circle, just like Peter, James, and John. The disciples' fear and silence at the empty tomb, then, is not due to their gender, nor was it due to a lack of access to Jesus himself, but, their, but that their fear and silence stems from being unable to connect the dots just like Peter, James, and John. Their reluctance to heed the angels' instructions to tell Peter and the others about the empty tomb stems from being unable to recognize that this was the event that Jesus was plainly foreshadowing before his crucifixion. So, we can take the disciples' fear and silence, either as a form of reverence or a form of reluctance. And I don't know which one's the right one. 
And I'm sure if you really wanted to, we could find it out. We would have to go on Amazon.com, buy a bunch of commentaries, and spend the rest of our lives in the library. But I'm sure we could get that figured out if you really wanted to. But what I think is more interesting about these two different ways of understanding fear and silence is that both kinds of people are represented whenever the body of Christ comes together. Whenever we gather together as a church community, we are either occupying a reverent or reluctant posture as it relates to the empty tomb. On the one hand, there are some of us here who can't help but marvel at the mystery of the empty tomb. I mean, when we hear about the risen Christ, when we think about God's power, God's providence, God's goodness, God's knowledge, we can't help but render praise and thanks to God. And as a response to our heartfelt praise and thanks to God, uh, we, we take this call to live into this uh, holiness he wants us to embody as a response of our, as a response to, uh, to our gratitude, and we take this responsibility with like the most utmost reverence. Yet on the other hand, there are some of us here who aren't sure how to make sense of any of it. Like we know the story, we know this should be good news. We know this should be hopeful. This should be that timeless truth that moves us out of our seats and onto our feet. But we can't help but question God's power, God's knowledge and providence and goodness. For while he's clearly seen in the lives of others, he's not too evident in ours. Why should I live into this larger calling when I don't even feel or see the significance of the resurrection. I don't know where you find yourself this morning, but what I do know is that common to both reluctant and reverent alike is that as a church family, we occupy this common space where we are gazing at the empty tomb together. And whether you are gazing at the empty tomb with reverence or reluctance, the question remains the same. Will you heed the instructions and go tell others about the risen Christ? Perhaps we find ourselves more in a more reverent than a reluctant space. Perhaps we see those living a life of reluctance and it just bears down on us. It wanes on us. This ends up showing itself through questions like, how can he or she behave in this way? Or how can they raise their kids like that? Or I wonder what happened to their marriage. You see, whenever we occupy the space of reverence, we must be very attentive in how we treat and see those who occupy a space of reluctance. For whenever we occupy that reverence space, we tend to evaluate everyone in lieu of our own spirituality. And whenever we do that, especially when we do that at church, we play a very dangerous game that almost always results in some sort of harm being committed to someone else. So when we find ourselves in this reverence space, 
May the indwelling person of the Holy Spirit remind us that as members of Christ's body, we are called to proclaim and embody good news to those who occupy a reluctant space. Because we all exist in a posture of reluctance at some point in our lives and arguably at multiple points in our lives. Our proclamation embodiment of good news must not be steeped in vices like pride or superiority, but with the virtues of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, self-control, goodness, faithfulness. Perhaps we find ourselves more in a reluctant space than a reverent one. Perhaps we are reluctant in telling others about the good news of the risen Christ because we're just unsure of how to make sense of it ourselves. Perhaps our reluctance stems from our fear of letting go of our addictions or our undisciplined desires or our own personal vices of pride and jealousy, malice. Perhaps our reluctance stems from personal tragedy, unexpected death, An affair, a loss of relationship. And if if this is where you happen to be this morning, if this happens to be a place where you've occupied for quite some time, then please hear this. Christ will meet you where you are. Not only will Christ meet you where you are, he will always meet you where you are. Not only will he meet us where we are, but he'll extend to us the invitation to receive his grace, his love, and his hope. He does this by inviting us into this community of faith that allows us to make sense of the insensible together, to confess the unsayable to one another, and to learn from each other how we more fully live into this holiness that derives from the indwelling person of the Holy Spirit. For we participate in the life of the church, not because we earn forgiveness here, Nor does it compel God to forgive sins since the Lamb of God has already taken away the sins of the world in his sacrifice. We participate in the life of the church to learn how to embody redemption by living a reconciled life and thereby bringing the kingdom of God, however incompletely, into the present. So whether you're someone living a life of reverence We're living a life of reluctance. We exist in this space where we gaze at the empty tomb together. We gaze upon the empty tomb as we wait for the final coming of Christ, the risen King. We exist in this space where we await his magnificent return to bring forth a new heaven and a new earth. We anticipate that day where we no longer gaze at an empty tomb, but look at the fullest extent of his glory. And all we're left to do is praising God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Nevertheless, as we wait for that final day, the question still remains to both the reluctant and reverent alike. Will we heed the instruction? And tell others about the risen Christ. Let's pray.
Holy God, may your good news of your resurrection be the foundation upon which we exist in the world. Forgive us for our sins, wash away our wounds, end our insecurity, render us anew. Empower us to make room for others, both reverent and reluctant alike. In the name of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we all say, Amen. Haven't done this in a while. If you're visiting with us this morning, we want want to let you know that we are about to enter into a sacred and holy time of communion. This is a moment where we share, partake, and reflect on our Lord's life, death, and resurrection. On the night he was handed over to suffering and death, our Lord Jesus Christ took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this for the remembrance of me. After supper, he took the cup of wine, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and said, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, do this for for the remembrance of me. Therefore, as the body of Christ, we proclaim the threefold mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Let's stand for the prayer of confession. We confess to each other and to you, our creator, that we fall short of being what we were created to be and what we have committed ourselves to be. Hear us, forgive us, renew our resolve in the name of Christ. We often seek out the easiest path, paths of least involvement in places where we might be uncomfortable or paths of self-centeredness. We confess that we have not loved you with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our mind, and with all of our strength. Bring us out of darkness, Lord, and into the light of your love. Hear us, forgive us, renew our Forgive us for getting so caught up in the world's trappings and its false message of hope that we lose sight of the hope of the kingdom, which brings healing and peace to a world in turmoil. May we resolve to become more kingdom-minded, to be peacemakers here and now. In the name of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we all say, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> 